I hate to burst your bubble, Brian, but you know, you may be fine. You are fine. It's all good. And change is gonna come, baby. I mean, it's it's heading your way. It's a cyclone blowing across a Kansas prairie. Hey, hey, Brian Miller here, and welcome back to One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that every interaction is meaningful and every person we meet is important. Today's guest is Peter Gazzardi, a legendary book editor who worked with Stephen Hawking on A Brief History of Time, Susan Cain on Quiet, and Deepak Chopra on Ageless Body, Timeless Mind just to name a few. After 40 years in publishing, Peter has authored his first book, Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow. In this episode, we chat about what exactly an editor's role is in the publishing process, the timeless wisdom contained in The Wizard of Oz, and Peter shares his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. We had some internet issues during this call, which took place in the middle of his book tour. It's a little wonky towards the beginning and, again, briefly at the end, but crystal clear for the vast majority. I think you'll find Peter's warmth and insight transcends the occasional audio blip. So sit back, relax, and please enjoy. All right, Peter, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate your time. Brian, it's a thrill to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So wh- where are you calling in from right now? Where is your home? Uh, my home is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Ooh, North Carolina. I, I managed to make it down to the Carolinas at least once or twice a year on, on tour. It's beautiful in that area. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a college town. So we, I think we have the best of many worlds here. Let, let's start here. You're here, of course, to, to talk about your, your new book, your first book uh, as an author, Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow. We are going to talk plenty about your book uh, because there's so much good stuff in here. And, and, and let me just say to kick this off, I just, you know, got it in my hands a few days ago. It literally, at the time of recording, it just came out. Besides the fact that it's just wonderfully written and just a beautiful, beautiful book inside and out. The folks over at HarperCollins really did you justice because the cover, the feel, the colors, the typography, the layout, it's perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, I think my favorite feature, uh, apart from the foil red ruby slippers on the cover, I I love the kind of sparkly green end papers. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In case I ever use this video, I'm going to put this on video here. The when, When my wife opened it, that was the first thing. She opened the first, the cover and just went, ooh. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and, and as we, we both know, people do judge a book by its cover. And, and this book, uh, this cover, I think, speaks, uh, speaks volumes to what's inside. So we, we will get back to, to the book in just a little bit. But let's start with your, your kind of your, your background. You spent a career as an editor. Is that right? Yes. You know, I'm a big believer in the fact that, that we're shaped in kind of very positive ways by adversity. Uh, and in my case, when I was two years old, Brian, uh, I had polio. Uh, this was the early 1950s. And, uh, and millions of people around the world were struck by this epidemic. Um, and many of them just got a mild kind of flu-like 
situation. Um, and some, some died and some had a very serious experience. Mine was on the more serious end. Um, and as a result, I had the paralysis and I was always, and I recovered, which is great. And, but I was always like a step slower than the other kids on the playground. And perhaps some of your viewers can relate, you know, for their own reasons. Not everyone is, is a great athlete. Not everyone is the first one picked in PE. Uh, and, uh, and I was always the last one picked. Um, and as a result, what, you know, I, I, the way I describe it is that uh, if polio was my kryptonite, uh, then reading became my superpower. Uh, I just immersed myself in the world of books as a way of kind of compensating for my physical limitations. And uh, I just gobbled up novel after novel and explored world after world. And through the pages of these books, I became as, you know, strong and sinewy as Tarzan, you know, as virtuous as the Knights of the Round Table, uh, as powerful as Merlin. Um, it, and it was that, that that's how it worked for me. And it turned out to be a great thing, you know, it, in the sense that um, I grew up to be an editor. I grew up to, to uh, be a professional in the world of books and to help authors and guide them through the very tricky waters of, especially if you're a first-time author, of writing a book, of navigating those, those, those dangerous shoals. On that note, I think we probably have a lot of folks listening to this who are not clear on exactly what a book editor does as opposed to the author. It's a term we hear all the time. And, and my own experience, I, you know, I just published my first book last year and it took me, you know, three years to write it. And, and everybody told me that it's the editing that's the hard part is that when you get in, once you're done writing it, once you get to the editing phase, and you bring other people on and you start to deal with shaping it, uh, that's when the real work starts. So can you illuminate for us what an editor does? What is an editor's primary function? And then I'm more interested to know, what do you love about being an editor? Well, I think the, the editorial function has two kind of principal components. I think a lot of people, when they hear the word editor, think of what we in the business call a copy editor. They think of somebody who's checking the grammar, uh, making sure that things are coherent, that if you're, the main character was Alice on page three, that it's not Alicia on page 38. But that's the job of a copy editor. An editor has a very different function. An editor serves as the reader, the kind of uber reader, the stand-in for the reader. Um, so it's my job to to read the material and then respond. Just, just so what works for me? You know, what doesn't work? Uh, where does it, where do I start to doze? You know, where do I get really excited? So then you give this feedback to the author and you say, so here are the places where the book catches fire. So let's build the material around that. And here's, here are the places where it starts to feel redundant or flabby. You know, let's, let's pare that away. Uh, so it's really, very hands-on. It's very structural. It's like, so here's, and here's how to build this thing up. You, you've done a great job, lots of affirmation, and here's how we're going to work together to make sure that this structure is the best, soundest, most exciting structure it can be for your ideas. For me, every time since my book came out, I've had folks you know, reach out to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about writing my first book. What was the process like? I keep telling them, if you do nothing else, hire a developmental editor. But developmental felt like I had a co-author almost. Um, my my 
editor, um, Melissa, she was just extraordinary. And to what extent do you have to be the right fit and the right kind of person with the right background for that book? You know what I mean? Because if I was an editor, I would think I should not I should not be editing historical fiction books because I don't enjoy historical fiction books. And if my job is to go, here's where it drags, I'm going to say the whole book dragged because I don't (laughs) like those books. Right. Yes. No, you want to steer clear of the areas where you absolutely have no interest. But if you have eclectic and widespread interests like I do, then in a way, my strongest asset is that I'm not a specialist. You know, I'm a generalist. So, for example, when I work with Stephen Hawking on A Brief History of Time, you know, my function, as I saw it, was to repeatedly say to Stephen, I don't get it, you know, and then he would make a revision and I would say, I still don't get it. Uh, And in the acknowledgments, he says, you know, Peter drove me crazy, Uh, but the book was much the better for it. So you are every man as the editor. Uh, And And your job is to go after the author until the author makes that idea clear and coherent and, if possible, exciting. So you're constantly pushing them in a loving way to to make it light up for you with the assumption that if it lights up for you, it's going to light up for the reader. Mm. It sounds like one of the primary functions of the the editor is to be um, compassionate which uh, I think goes right into uh, to, to the book, as we're going to get to in a little bit, in, in Emeralds of Oz. That was a big theme in, in the book was compassion. Or do, you, do you feel like these books that you were an editor for, do you feel like they're partly your books? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a co-author, I, I hasten to add. And, and what it feels a lot like, Brian, is I'm a co-pilot in the sense that I'm there for the ride and I'll make suggestions and the suggestions I hope will be important and helpful. But it is finally the author who's who's flying the plane. And I had no idea what an author goes through until I had to do it myself. No idea. So that was actually going to be my next question. You steered right into it. What what have you found what kind of empathy have you developed now for from having gone through it on the author's you know in, in the author's perspective well as i as i think about it in this moment i think about the connections to the wizard of oz i never felt so lost in all my life brian and i am a professional i have done this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times for other people you know guided them through that terrible feeling of lost and what, where's the next sentence going to come from, the next paragraph, the next idea. And yet when it was me, all of that wisdom, all of that experience just flew out the window. It was gone. It was there I was. Somebody had dropped me in a rowboat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean at night without oars and said, now find your way. Uh, it was a profound experience. I, I can really relate to that as, uh, you know, as an inspirational speaker and and speaking on the topic, I, my particular topic of human connection is what I get brought in to speak about and, and coach on and consult on. And what's funny is that, you know, people think like, well, you must be perfect in your relationships because this is your expertise. It's like, well, no, because I'm just like everybody else. It's that I have to remember this stuff too. In fact, the reason that I 
ended up making that my life's work is because I was actually so bad at it for so long. I so desperately wanted to get better. And once I got better, I felt the need to share it with other people, say, look, you can get better at this too. Um, It's really hard to take your own advice. And I feel like it's really hard to get out of your own limited perspective. That's why we need other people in a creative process, particularly, right? I think that that's beautifully put. And uh, the way I describe it in the book is it's like the preacher always tells the sermon that he or she needs to hear. Uh, and the author always writes the book that he or she really needs to listen to. Uh, And that was very much the case as it turned out for me. Um, I needed to make the journey that it turned out Dorothy made from from helpless to capable and competent, you know, from lost to profoundly found uh, within herself. Okay, so tell us Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow. What is this book? Who is it for? Well, Certainly, it's for people who know and remember and love The Wizard of Oz, although I will also make the counter argument that wisdom is wisdom. And what I believe happens with wisdom is it just gets poured into different receptacles in different forms in novels, in movies. And in this book explores the wisdom that is poured into The Wizard of Oz. But as you'll see, as you know, as we explore it, uh, this wisdom resonates profoundly with, with Buddhism uh, and with Christianity and all kinds of spiritual traditions, uh, religious or not, um, because wisdom is wisdom. I like that you use the word spiritual. And when I was a philosophy major, I read, among a million other amazing books, I read The Tao of Pooh by Benjamin Hoff, the, the classic uh, where he deconstructed Winnie the Pooh and all the characters and the lessons um, in the vein of Taoism. And that, that is the sense I got from, from this book, that you were taking something beloved, so like Winnie the Pooh, you were taking The Wizard of Oz, something we're all just so intimately familiar with, even people who don't think they're familiar with it, I think don't realize how well they know the story and how well they know the movie if they were actually asked about it. Um, it's just so pervasive in, in, in pop culture. And, and how many years later now? It, this is August marks the 80th anniversary of the release of the film, 80 years. And the book on which it's based uh, just celebrated its 119th birthday. So this truly is a classic. Both book and film truly pass the test of time. And I would argue that that things only pass the test of time, creative works, when below the surface of the high entertainment value that they deliver, there is wisdom that either knowingly or unknowingly we absorb. Uh, and, And it makes us better people. And as a result, we have a special feeling about that particular film or book. You know, if I'm right, and the reason films and books become classics is because they do more than simply entertain, uh, they do that superbly well. Um, And there is something below the surface that connects with our kind of shared human experience that becomes the reason, the underlying reason why 80 years later or 100 or 200 or 300 people are still turning to that book 
or that film uh, for that hit, for that hit of our shared humanity, for something that is uplifting to them, that, that is inspiring. Uh, and I think that's very much what's going on with this film. Uh, and what I did was a deep dive. I had this hit, Brian, that that um, one day I was in a publisher's office. This is what I do a couple of times a year. I go to New York and I visit people and remind them that I'm out here. So they'll send me their, their books that really need help and love and care. And on this particular day, I was at HarperCollins and on this bookshelf, I saw this oversized book, which was the 75th anniversary edition of The Wizard of Oz. And there was this image of Dorothy stepping out into Oz with this this look of wonderment on her face, right? And, and suddenly I had this hit, like all of this wisdom. I mean, I've rubbed elbows. I've worked with Deepak Chopra on 15 books, you know, with Stephen Hawking, with Carol Burnett, with Ariana Huffington, with all these kind of brilliant people, Susan Cain. And I got this hit, like all of that wisdom that I accumulated just from working with them was right there in that film that I watched when I was 11 years old. Just like Dorothy Gale, I had to go on a journey in order to discover that wisdom that I had already absorbed as a little boy. Was it written for any particular age group? Is this for young? Is it for just the young at heart? Uh, it's the young at heart. And that is the, the, the dedication both of my book and of the film. It's dedicated to the young in heart. Uh, and no, it transcends age. Um, I've kept the language uh, PG or, or younger, um, so that, and I, my talks are the same, so that you can bring your kids um, and you can bring your parents and grandparents. Um, and there is a generation, we've all watched The Wizard of Oz, most of us have, there is a generation that grew up in the 60s and 70s for whom watching The Wizard of Oz was an annual event. Uh, that film at around 1958-1959, that film began, CBS started showing that movie once a year. Uh, so for families like mine, once a year we would gather around our black and white TV in those days and watch this film. So for those people, the wisdom is already kind of deeply, uh, it's been absorbed at a cellular level, if you will. And for the rest of us, those people might have watched it once or twice. I would argue that the wisdom is already in you. All it needs to do is to be kind of lit up by awareness, by taking a look at this book, uh, even by just thinking about it on your own. Think about what wisdom lies under the surface, and it will start to come alive for you. So the wisdom in this book, it takes the form of emeralds. If you go through it, there's some 50 plus lessons and then nine emeralds interspersed in between them. I know from seeing you on social media and your tours, you're talking a lot about these nine emeralds and how they uh, form this wonderful system. Um, before we get to the emeralds of wisdom, the big nine themselves, I'd actually like to, if you're interested, I'd like to ask you a few questions about some of the I don't know, the, the regular lessons, the numbered lessons that are all throughout the book, because while the emeralds are wonderful and clearly form this beautiful system by the end of it, I found a lot of gold in some of the 
lessons that I don't feel like are getting as much attention in your promotion uh, and in your your speaking about the book. <laughs> uh, so I, I'd love to ask you about, in particular, number four, it's really early on, when change comes knocking, answer the door. When change comes knocking, answer the door. Let me play devil's advocate. What if I'm content with my life, right? What if I'm... I, I'm I'm happy or I'm fine or things are fine. What's in it for me to answer the door when change comes knocking? Well, I hate to burst your bubble, Brian, but you know, you may be fine, you are fine, it's all good, and change is gonna come, baby. I mean, it's it's heading your way. It's a cyclone blowing across a Kansas prairie. Uh, if we could get away with just holding on to what we got and not having any change come into our lives, I'm sure we would all do it and, and more power to us. But that just isn't an option. So you might as well be ready when change comes. And instead of barring the door, uh, which just means it's going to get knocked flat, uh, open the door and look at it and embrace it and make the most of it because there are many gifts in that change that's coming your way. But, um, you know, this is the call. This is the invitation to the hero's journey, right? This is the most profound experience in our lives. This is an archetypal story, and you and I are living it just as Dorothy Gale did. We are on our own hero's journey, and we have a call. We have a great challenge. We have great prizes awaiting us if we answer that call and we meet the challenge just the way Dorothy did. Uh, And you can hold off. You can decide not to for a while, um, just like kind of Harry Potter did, right? But eventually, um, somebody's going to show up and and that call is going to be so loud and so forceful that you will not have a choice. It's a Beautiful answer. I'm 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 a real control guy. I like you know I'm self-employed. I like to have control over every aspect of my life as much as possible. And the 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 older I get, though I'm not old by any stretch, I just realize on like a daily basis how little we have control over. But but I think like you said, when that change comes knocking, when that you know that that tornado whips through, you can stay put which is comfortable until it barrels you over, right? Or you can open the door and you can you can say hello to it. You can do something with it. I think much later in the book, uh, you discussed fear. And, and I, I feel that way about fear too, that you can be afraid of it, right? That, that fear of fear kind of a thing. Or you can, uh, in, in, in the words of Seth Godin, who was just recently on the show, um, you can dance with it. You can dance with fear. Right? Is that how you feel about about change? Yes, I mean that that's beautifully put. I love that dancing with fear. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're afraid of it, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, when you take a deep breath and turn around at that fear that's climbing up behind you, that nameless dark thing that's getting more and more intense. You can hear those footsteps getting louder and louder. Stop, turn around, and guess what? Whatever it is you think it is. It's smaller than that. It's more manageable than that. Um, so, yes, I, I think that that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the nine emeralds um, has to do with power, that, the Glinda one that we mentioned earlier. You know, you've got the power and you had it all along. Well, you don't have the power, as you say, you have 
a certain kind of power. You don't have the power to dictate events. Um, events are going to occur. What you have is the power to shape your response to those events. Uh, and that's a tremendous power. Um, you can either, and part of it's attitude, you know, are you going to choose to be helpless or are you going to choose to be powerful? Uh, and part of it is just realizing that um, you can shape, you can, you can look at it, you can look at that adversity, that setback as proof positive that you're a fraud and a failure, uh, or you can look at it as an opportunity to grow, as an invitation to take this on so that you can become a better, richer, more sensitive, more thoughtful person. Um, and that's your choice, and that is tremendous power. So the core theme of the show is about chance encounters, lasting impact. Over the course of our conversation, you have dropped more names than most people could possibly drop uh, in terms of Susan Cain, uh, Stephen Hawking, Carol Burnett. uh, I don't know if you mentioned Douglas Adams. You have Deepak Chopra. I would love to ask you the core question of the show, which is, uh, would you like to tell me a story of of a chance encounter? It need not be one of these famous people. Well, the one that leaps to mind um, is not necessarily related to the book or any of the topics we're talking about, but I was at the gym maybe seven or eight years ago, and uh, I saw a man come into the gym, and he had a white cane, Uh, And he was tapping his way across the floor of the gym, very skillfully, uh, tapped his way into the the men's changing room, uh, came out in in sweats, and then started tapping his way to uh, machines and working out. And I was really struck by this. I thought, wow, that guy has such courage. Um, He's, there he is, uh, going to the gym, and he is blind. Uh, and I just made a mental note, and I thought, you know, if I ever get a chance to meet that guy, uh, I'm going to take it. And it wasn't, lo and behold, it was a week later when he came into the men's changing room when I was there, and I struck up a conversation with him, um, and then we started to chat every time we saw each other in the gym, and then I discovered that he likes to play guitar, uh, and I like to play guitar, and I said, hey, why don't we get together and then bang on our guitars sometime, and we did, and now we do it every week. Uh, and Jerry Hall is is a really dear friend, and uh, I can't tell you directly how that affects the Emeralds of Oz. Although he had a, he helped me a lot when I was stuck with the book. He's a deeply spiritual person, and I would just talk to him and say, "Gosh, I don't know if I can do this." And he was enormously encouraging. So there is that connection. But I feel like my life is so much richer for having, to having kind of taken advantage of that opportunity, recognized the courage in this guy and how special he was. It's not hard to do when, so, when it's that obvious. But to take that extra step and say, hey, man, like, how you doing? And then, um, and then go with the connection. It's been, it's been a wonderful addition to my life. Uh, that's, a, that's a great story. And I, I think you may not be giving yourself enough credit because when you said it's it you know it's not hard to do when it's so obvious but i think it is hard to do because i think most 
most of us on most days, especially when we're just going through our daily rituals, I got to go to the store, I got to get the food, I got to, I'm at the airport all the time. And I think it is really hard to recognize that level of courage and humanity in, in the people around us when we get so wrapped up in our own, in our own stuff. And so I think that, that being present is a practice. It's, I don't think, I don't think it's something anybody just simply does naturally. I think some folks may be particularly introverts in my experience, and I am not one, um, seem more in tune to that. But even if you're, you're naturally gifted in something, you still have to work at it to, to be really good at it. I'd, I'd love to ask you if we can take a small detour and before we get back to the Emeralds, when my wife originally found out that you and I were going to be chatting and she realized that you had worked with Susan Cain, she just lit up because that book, Susan's book, um, Quiet was such a huge part of our relationship. My, my wife is a, she's a counselor, a therapist, um, a, a, a stereotypical introvert. I am a stereotypical extrovert. And when we were first dating, we butted heads a few times early in our, in our dating, mostly because she was under the impression that I was interrupting her, not under the impression, I was interrupting her. Uh, <laughs> I was, uh, you know, kind of talking over her. And we had this perspective uh, where my family, largely Italian, very vocal, we just kind of yell over each other. I didn't. I had never realized that until this was brought up to me. We just kind of talk over each other, and I, and it, and it, and and she, we kept butting heads. And she finally shoved this book in my hands, and she it was quiet. And she said, "Read this book, and you'll understand why I'm upset." And I did. I read it cover to cover, and and it it. I mean, it, it practically brought me to tears. I, I had never realized how many people in my life, personally and professionally, I was probably treating poorly in conversations by not recognizing how introverts need something very different than extroverts need. What was it like for you working with Susan Cain on, on that book that's become so powerful? And I'm sure there are like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of stories like mine about about how it it empow- it empowers introverts and it enlightens extroverts. Yeah, I mean, at the time that I started working on the book, Susan Cain was just Susan Cain. Uh, actually, I had worked with her husband on his book, uh, and Susan was a first time author, and her editor had taken leave uh, and uh, was going to be returning. But the timing was such that they needed somebody to work with Susan. And so I started reading these early drafts of the manuscript, and it was her variation on that kind of lost phenomenon that I described in myself. She just had basic questions that she needed someone to answer. Um, one of them was, you know, how much science should there be in the book? She said, I've heard, I've heard people have told me that if I put a lot of science in there, it's going to limit the audience. You know, what do you think? And I said, I just reacted as a reader. And I said, the more science, the better. Uh, The more research you can put in there to support your points. And to the degree that you can make the science firsthand, like you've gone to that laboratory and met the scientist and you've talked about what's going on and the research studies. And uh, that makes it all the more fascinating. Uh, So what I did was just give her the kind of gentle nudges 
that a rider does, and she took, she interpreted those herself, uh, and she she created the magic. She made it happen. Um, but I was just there to to give her advice, to give her counsel, um, and it just turned out to be a, a a great experience for all concerned. And of course, you know, the book was was and is a phenomenal success. Um, you know, but I think that it does what you've been talking about, Brian. I mean, like the book about the love languages or the Enneagram, uh, it gives us a way to understand other people that we wouldn't otherwise have. It gives us tools for making connections that we couldn't otherwise make or wouldn't otherwise make. Uh, and um, yeah, there's, there's the magic for sure. So we're we're steering right back into Emeralds of Oz now because you you mentioned that you know just like you were Susan was um, was lost in terms of these kind of basic uh, even just some of the basic questions um, let alone the bigger ones the lesson number nineteen in here is when you're lost it's okay to ask for directions and that just hit me right in the chest and and I, and, I, and I'm going to tell you why. My parents are both computer scientists, so I inherited the math gene. Um, I coasted through math classes without studying or trying all my life. It's not because I was good at math. I just had it in me. I was born with it. Uh, I did not nurture it. I was just good at it. And in high school, I bumped up against AP calculus, and I struggled with math for the first time in my life because it had finally gotten above what my natural ability was capable of, and I had not ever studied math. I had not ever practiced it. I was just good at it. Our math department made itself available early in the morning before the first bell. And so my dad told me, go in for extra help. And I totally rejected that idea. I mean, I, I think I actually said to him, like, no, it's only dumb students who need extra help. And my dad gave me one of the greatest lessons of my entire life. I'll never forget it. I can remember where I was standing in the kitchen. He said, no, Brian, only smart students go for extra help. No, I think that, you know, I had a couple of two kind of brilliant editors help me with the book in those times when I was lost. Um, and yet... For all the wisdom that they gave me, it was finally family members when I actually was willing to to, to send the manuscript to my son, Sam, uh, or finally in a moment of crisis to go to my wife, Isabel, and say, help, you know, I need your help. Um, those were the moments that really changed things for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's very hard for me um, and I think it's very hard for all of us in this kind of self-sufficient, lone ranger American culture that we grow up in. Um, it's very hard to ask people for help. And yet it's really the only way through, you know, as the lone ranger. Even the lone ranger has Tonto, right? You've got to have somebody <laughs> you can turn to. And yeah, look at, look at what Dorothy does. Um, she makes friends all along the yellow brick road because she is vulnerable, because she's compassionate. Um, she turns these weird creatures she meets into allies. Before we kind of move into the end of this conversation, and I, I could do this conversation for the next five hours, so I'm going to at some point we will arbitrarily have to cut it off. Uh, <laughs> before we before we move into that, 
can you describe, we, we've bounced around, there's all these life lessons, but then there's these nine emeralds of wisdom. What are those in the book and, and how do they form? Um, okay, yeah, I'm going to flash through them really quickly. Um, the good news is, I mean, there are nine of them, um, and what I've found is that they work together as a circuit um, for us, just the way they did for Dorothy. When she goes through these nine iconic moments in the film, she learns something happens to her. And then by the end of the film, when she's going through all nine, she is a different person than the helpless, frightened little girl she was at the beginning. Uh, And I think that these nine emeralds have that effect on us. So the first one is listen to your longing. Not just what you want or what you need, which is really important for someone like me, a firstborn child who's all about looking outside for, um, for happiness, for the answers, uh, trying to fix things for other people. This is an invitation not just to check in with what you want or need, which is important, but to go below that. You know, what do you long for? I'm having a huge fight with my wife about my teenage daughter. We have very different philosophies about how to raise this kid. Um, And in this moment, I I stop. What do I long for? I mean, I long to be connected to this woman who I've spent 45 years with. Uh, And in service of that longing, I can let go of my desire to be right (laughs) and just... And just set that aside and reconnect with my wife. So that's the first thing. Listen to your longing. The second one is see the situation as if for the first time, like Dorothy stepping out into the miracle of Oz. Uh, let's, let's take a moment to remember what a miracle it is that we are here. Uh, and this is that beginner's mind. This is the invitation to close our eyes, take a deep breath, feel the air on our skin, and be fully present in this moment, which is the only one we have. Uh, Number three, quick, celebrate yourself for just showing up. Dorothy, all Dorothy does is land in Oz, and she has killed the Wicked Witch of the East, right? That's completely unintentional. She just showed up, and as a result, the munchkins pour out of the bushes. They celebrate her with song. They celebrate her with a parade, keys to the city. So do this for yourself. In whatever the issue is that you're facing, take a moment at Emerald Number 3. Celebrate yourself for showing up to this difficult meeting, to this job interview. Hey, woohoo! you're here, you know, and that's big. Number four is choose compassion. Dorothy does this again and again and again and again. Compassion for the scarecrow, compassion for the tin man, compassion for the cowardly lion. So you choose compassion for that other person, for that teacher you're having the difficult conversation with about your child, your spouse, your boss. Choose compassion and then direct that compassion to yourself and cut yourself a break. Uh, number five is realize, this one is a hard one for me, and we'll maybe get into that. I think some of these come very easy and naturally to people, and others are more difficult. And I'm fascinated by the ones that are difficult, because that's a place where you can do work and benefit from it. This one comes hard for me. Five, realize that you already possess what you desire most. 
So this is the one, this is the classic one where the scarecrow is desperate for brains. And look how smart he is. Look how clever those observations are that he makes. And this is, Baum is having fun with this one, right? Look at the Tin Man. He's, he, he wants a heart, but he's so, he's so emotional that he's, he's in danger of rusting all the time. And the same is true of the Cowardly Lion. They possess what they desire most. They've just gotten turned around. You know, they're not aware of it. Just like you and I get turned around in our lives and forget that we, whatever it is that is most important to us, for me, it's probably courage. I just need to, to work on that. Realize I've got it. It's in there. Let me, let me get in touch with it and thereby nurture it, become more aware of it, and it will be more present in my life. Uh, number six is face what you fear. We talked about this one. It's a big one. Dorothy goes to the castle of the Wicked Witch of the West. By facing what we fear, it gets smaller. Number seven is pull back the curtain and see things as they really are. Toto pulls back the curtain. The great and powerful Oz is just a little balding man who says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, and in our lives, we tend to layer experience with stories. We make up stories. We're constantly looking at the worst case scenarios. We add drama. When we, this is an invitation to pull back the curtain of the drama and stories that we tell ourselves and just look at what's going on. I'm in a parking lot about to audition for a choir. I'm, I'm so nervous that I can't open the door to, to, to walk into that church for that choir audition. Um, so this is an invitation to say, oh, there's a man too nervous to open a door. Isn't that interesting? Inside a church, a man at a piano is waiting for him to show up. Isn't that curious? So just take a look at it. Pull back the curtain. Uh, eight is you've got the power and you've had it all along, that the classic moment when Glinda informs Dorothy, and we talked about this a little bit. Uh, and nine is there's no place like home. And this is, there's the obvious, um, and then it gets more deeper and more subtle as you kind of dig down. Home is, is, is a kind of state of mind. It's a kind of a comfortable place within ourselves. So locating it within yourself as opposed to in that plaster uh, place that you, plaster and wood place that you live. And then realizing that it is, it exists in you, Brian, and in me, Peter, and in all of your listeners. And therefore it's a shared space. You know, it's a space where we are all infinitely and ultimately and profoundly connected. And when you tap into that, you realize you get a really deep sense of what it means to be home. So when you make this circuit, you start off being centering yourself and you end up even more profoundly centered. So it's a beautiful thing. And whatever the issue is you're facing, you know, that fight, that job interview, that difficult moment at your child's school, it shrinks because you suddenly have this expansive awareness of yourself. I believe that you have a you have some resources uh, that you've been putting out there. You actually have kind of like a, a postcard or an image that shows these nine emeralds, right? It's beautiful. I've seen it on your socials. Yes, um, it's on my website. Yes. All right. So, so we we will make sure that that is linked in the show notes. Um, where where do we find that? Your website? It's petergazardi.com. That's my name, P-E-T-E-R-G-U-Z-Z-A-R-D-I.com. Or it might be easier to remember emeraldsofoz.com. 
which is the title of the book. Well, either of those you can go to. We will make sure that uh, the links and the links to your social media accounts where you're doing all this wonderful stuff with Oz and, and the book um, are, are, in the, are in the show notes for folks on, uh, on onenewperson.com. I'd like to ask you one more question before we wrap this up. Do you have time for one more? Of course. As I was thinking through Oz and I was reading the book, I just kept wondering, do you believe these lessons were intended by the writers, by the creators? Because you mentioned early in the book that they're not all obvious. You have to pull them out of the movie, uh, the story. Do you think they were intended is the first part of my question? Uh, That's a fabulous question. And I would hedge my bets a little bit. I mean, yes, yeah, the answer, my answer is yes. Um, but that's because I'm seeing it through my lens, right? Just as you'd see it through yours. So I think we go back to the issue of, of seeing this film as, as a work of art. Uh, and that's the definition of a work of art, right? Everyone who looks at it responds, almost everyone responds. When you look at the Mona Lisa, you get a hit, right? And it might be very different from the hit that the person next to you in line is going to get. So I'm not sure. Was it intended by the artist? Um, Perhaps, arguably, I think you can make a stronger case for the fact that it is a work of art precisely because it is a, it has so many different facets in its prism that, uh, that something reflects back to, for almost everyone. And the follow-up question to that is, as someone who is an artist, who's been in an artistic and creative field for as long as you have, do you have an opinion, and you may not, do you have an opinion on the philosophy of art question, which is, does it matter? Is it the intention of the artist that matters, or is it in the interpretation of the audience? Who does it belong to? Ultimately, if I had to pick one, I would say it's it's the response that the reader or viewer has. But I don't have to pick one. I can pick both. Uh, I think it's always really illuminating. Okay, first you have your response, and I think that's the most valid and most significant thing. But it's also really illuminating to then go and explore what did the author intend, as best we know? Uh, What do biographies say about the author? What kind of life did he or she lead? And how is this work of art informed by their experience? I think that can add dimensions and depth and coloring to your experience of it as well. Let's close out with, do you have a piece of advice if you had you know, 30 seconds to give an aspiring, could be an aspiring author, uh, uh, but it could just be an, uh, an aspiring creative person. More and more uh, young people will be going into careers for themselves as we move further away from the industrial model and further into the, the you know, kind of the freelancer uh, economy as, as it seems to be moving. Uh, a huge portion of my audience are teens and young adults, young professionals, and educators who work with teens and young adults and young professionals. Um, do you have like one piece of advice for someone who's aspiring as a creator? Yeah, I think your experience is the conduit to the art that you're going to create. So hew close to your own experience. And as Brene Brown might say, um, you, you must be vulnerable. You know, explore those vulnerable, difficult places to go inside yourself because that is where your authenticity resides and your authenticity is going to be the portal through which you can connect to other people. So, so stick with what you know uh, and explore yourself 
and use that as a way to connect with other people. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Uh, I hope that sometime we can chat even more about Oz. And I, I hope that the, uh, the book tour and the book itself go exceedingly well for you. I think this book is just designed like inside and out, not just to be read, but to be gifted. And I would tell everybody, and I really mean that, I, I would tell everybody, buy a copy for yourself, but buy two or three more to give out to the people that you care about um, at, at any stage of your life. So thank you for writing this. It's, uh, it's just magnificent. Well, thank you, Brian. I, I really love the conversation. And I do, I'm not just saying this, you, you, you attack it from approach it from all these different interesting angles. So this is not uh, an out of the box conversation for me. And I love the opportunity to explore places that I might not have considered or gone uh, prior. So thank you so much. Real pleasure. Before you continue on down your personal yellow brick road, here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, one of the best ways to overcome a challenge is to teach someone else. Authors write the book they need to read. Preachers give the sermon they need to hear. Help someone else solve a similar problem to the one you're facing, and you'll be thrilled to discover just how much you learn along the way. Second, you can fear change or embrace it but you definitely can't escape it. Lean into new experiences with an open mind and an open heart. You'll be lucky or you won't, but at least, like the cowardly lion, you'll have been courageous. And finally, let your experiences be a portal to the universe. Your perspective is wholly unique, and you should share your vision with the world. Not because everyone will like it, they won't, but because someone needs it. Head to emeraldsofoz.com to download the Nine Emeralds of Wisdom resource for free and pick up your copy of the book. Head to onenewperson.com for all show notes and related links. While you're there, subscribe via your favorite podcast streaming service and consider joining our community email with updates and bonus episodes. I'm Brian Miller. This is One New Person, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.